Hello, and welcome to The Business of Authority. I'm Jonathan Stark. And I'm Rochelle Moulton. And today we're going to talk about true fans. What's a true fan, Rochelle? Well, I have to say, I like Kevin Kelly's definition, which is a true fan is someone who will buy anything and everything you produce. Doesn't that sound good? (laughs) Yes. And he was talking, I, I think specifically talking about artists and musicians and exactly right and he's got a really um i would call it a pretty famous article called 1000 true fans and he posits that if an artist or musician has a thousand true fans they can make a living they can they can get by on that but today we wanted to talk about how that applies to consultants people who are uh, authors and you know authorities right exactly and It's kind of a follow-on episode from last week when we talked about the daily writing practice because certainly for me, I've found that writing every day has a lot of the ingredients, uh, you know, as a tactic, it has a lot of ingredients that create true fans with the startling degree of speed because you're putting out so much content so fast that you're automatically going to turn off people who aren't into your thing because they're going to unsubscribe. Mm-hmm. And people who are into your thing are going to stay there and they start looking forward to it, you know, which is, which is in an era where people despise email and they're just like, oh, my inbox is just a, a war zone. To be sending email that people are looking forward to receiving is, is mind boggling. And uh, so that's, that's one piece of it. They get to know you. The people who, who are into your idea, they get to know you. Personal things come up. They get, they feel like this level of intimacy and the other thing we mentioned about writing practice is it forces you to get past the surface level of your expertise very quickly. All of that mm-hmm. burns off in the first month, if not quicker, and you have to start going really deep and you start coming up with insights and provocative ideas and those sorts of things. They, I don't want to say polarize like in a, in a negative sense, but it does kind of polarize the audience. It's sort of, it, it energizes the people who resonate with these ideas and it sort of pushes away people who are maybe not so uh, into it. Which is what you want. I mean, that's, that's the thing. We don't want everybody to like us. (laughs) Even that inside part of, of someone that wants that you got to push that aside. This is about attracting your people, your real fans. So it's, it's not about being everything to everybody. The minute you do that, you've lost the game. Right. You almost certainly turn people off, not just not just bore people, but actually turn people off, get people Mm -hmm. attacking you because the idea threatens some behavior that they don't want to change or they just like flat think you're full of it, like an idiot or dangerous. (laughs) You know, you can imagine I'm not saying anyone's ever said that to me. Oh, no. But uh, yeah, Google for hourly billing is nuts on Hacker News and you'll see all my really my true anti fans. So, yeah, so we wanted to talk about this a little bit because for uh, someone who's selling, you know, maybe high ticket consulting engagements or uh, expensive coaching, you you don't really need that many clients to have a, a really strong practice. Yeah. If you look at your product service ladder, you can probably tell how many you need in a year to have what you call a good year versus a great year. Mm hmm. Right. Yeah, exactly. I mean, when I was doing software consulting, when I was at the top of my game in that space, I, if I had three clients in a year, it was a banner year. I mean, mm-hmm. I was like doing great. 
And so what, what's wild about that is compared to someone who's sort of churning through work and they're doing more of a uh, execution or implementation work, they are often operating at a fairly thin margin, profit margin, and they need to schedule work back to back. They need to always be uh, working on a project so there's no downtime. And, and when you're doing, uh, when you've got these, when you're positioning yourself as an authority and you're doing more advisory types of work with people, you can charge more money for less time commitment because they're, they're mm-hmm. getting access to your expertise, not your hands. And it gives you a lot of time in between those clients, lots of, actually lots of downtime in between, you know, whatever, phone calls, meetings, trips to client site. It's not constant. So you have all sorts of time in between to work on your ideas, write a book, do marketing, mm-hmm. speak at conferences, and, and attra- you know, increase your um, perceived authority in whatever market you're focused on or whatever space you're in and attract, you know, boom, you get one more of these home run clients that's paying you five figures per month for a couple of phone calls. And like you said, you know, you just don't need that many clients. So attracting them is tricky, but well, that's what we're talking about doing here. We're talking about what you can do to attract these, these clients. And, and I suppose there's the side topic of billing for your work in a way that, or pricing your work and and charging for your work in a way that uh, gives you that kind of high profit margin that gives you time to keep that wheel turning. You know, there's something in there you said that I think is interesting when you think about building true fans, execution versus advisory. So your point was that if your work is mostly about executing, then it's harder to find the time to invest in, in the sorts of things that uh, your, your point of view, your content, your speaking, a book, then if you are in an advisory role where you're billing greater amounts and you have more downtime to work on those things. I think maybe those things are also apply equally well to building true fans. So here's the funny thing is I don't think they're necessarily mutually exclusive, but it, in practice, they tend to be mutually exclusive, especially if you're, you know, not to bang on my hourly billing drum, but if you are billing by the hour, you have this pressure to put in more hours of labor on behalf of your clients, which in, in practice, what happens is people are like, oh, I want to, uh, whatever, put an addition mm-hmm. on my house or I want to put in a pool or my kids going to private school this year. So I'll put in more hours, I'll put in more hours, I'll put in more hours. And you end up working in the business all the time instead of on the business, which isn't necessarily the way it has to be. I mean, you could have employees do all that stuff and you'd be the sort of CEO sitting in the, sitting in your office, coming up with new big ideas and sort of planning strategically or that sort of thing. But you'd have to create those systems in order to do that. Otherwise you're going to wear too many hats, you know, especially early on in your business. It's, it's hard to hire the people you need for everything you'd like to offload. Right. And, and you don't need to do it. So if you, if you want to have employees and you enjoy the idea of being a manager and you just thrive in a team setting like that, then great, go do it. It's totally fine. And you can make plenty of money at it. But if you don't want to be a manager and you do just want to build the depth of your understanding in your space, like you want to explore your, your area of expertise and you don't really want to be doing one-on-ones and posting job listings online all the time and you know, that sort of stuff all the human resources, things that come with management. If you don't want to do that stuff, then 
it's probably good advice to move away from any execution work that you're doing to try to minimize it. Um, when Blair Enns came on the show, uh, he talked about uh, if you are going to do execution style work, you know, have that be a, an add on to a more strategic engagement. So when you get a new client, have them sort of come in the front door of your business through a strategy engagement. And if they want you to do some implementation after the strategy is defined, then and maybe you offer that as a service. Maybe you do it yourself. Maybe you have some contractors that do it for you. But you want to be always trying to build that that advisory, consultative, strategic piece of your business because that's what gives you the breathing room to have, you know, get more big ideas and have deeper insight into your area. Absolutely. I feel like the problem with implementation work is it's too easy to get sucked in to what the client wants you to do. So before you know it, you're saying yes, 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 instead of stepping back and thinking about what serves you, what serves your business, and then talking to the client about it in that vein. I mean, I, I like Blair's advice. In fact, it's it's kind of how I do my work. I, I only take people in through strategy. I don't do a lot of implementation work, but I do some. And it's only with people that have been with me through that process because it allows me to understand them and their issues and be really, really efficient and effective on the back end. But I don't want to do that work for anybody else. Right. Yeah, totally agree. It's like you, you've had a... a a beginning engagement that allows the trust to build in both directions uh, where you believe that this client is not going to abuse your time and they understand that you have their best interests at heart and you're going to knock it out of the park for them if it's within your power to do so. And, you know, that's, I think that's a great, that's great advice in general. Uh, but let's get, let's bring it back around to, to true fans and building true fans. So if we imagine, if, if we have established that you don't need many clients to have a really good year. So mm-hmm. if, you, if you imagine that, if you just take that as true, dear listener, if you imagine that that is true, then what can you do to sort of create this, like a, a really excited, engaged audience? So for me, it's definitely the daily list. It's podcasting. Um, I go through phases where I do these webinars, which are seem pretty effective. Uh, that's probably my third tier thing. Um, when I was doing software development, I would speak at conferences and write books. Those were the two two key mm-hmm. things that would those were the vehicles through which I would take my ideas and present them to the world in a way that was compelling. At least I, I hoped it was, and it it worked for me. So mm-hmm. what are, so what are some other things that you see people doing to build true fans? So Jonathan, I, I think the thing you left out is video. And I know from my own practice and from some clients is that video can attract a different kind of person than the one who is interested in audio or interested in writing. So again, it depends on who your audience is and it depends on um, how you are on video. I mean, everybody can get better, um, but for some people, video is just so uncomfortable that it's it's not worth the time investment other than one here or there. But I think about um, it, particularly in the realm of authority, there are some people who've made great hay with videos. I mean, I guess Gary Vee would be mm-hmm. an example of that. I mean, videos made him in the wine business. Yeah, absolutely. Wine Library TV. Yep. Yeah. And he ended up, you know, on, on Ellen and all the late night shows. And before you know it, he's 
like a rock star and he's doing migrating from this wine thing over to, uh, I don't know what he's like a sort of a media consultant now. I don't understand what he is now, but <laughs> whatever it is seems to be working for him. Right. Yeah. It's weird. He, he, it was a weird transition, but he seemed to execute it. But yeah, definitely. I mean, please like my, my kids forget about it. Like if they ran into HG Duddy, like I'm sure you have no idea who that even is or like I don't. Dan TDM, they would probably pass out. <laughs> I asked my eight year old, uh, it was a couple of weeks ago. I might've mentioned it on the show previously. I asked him, you know, what would you think if, if a famous musician came and performed in our, in our house? And he was like, kind of scrunched up his face. Like, well, like, like who's a famous musician? I was like, you know, like Beyonce or something. He's like, eh, I don't know. Yeah. W- what would she do? Like, what would she even do? And I was, you just couldn't get his head around <laughs> it. And I was like, well, what if Dan TDM came here for your birthday? And like, and he was just like, he was like, I, I'm not even going to try and impersonate him because he was like screaming. He was like, yes, let's do that. Let's do that for my birthday. Yeah, I was like, oh man, I shouldn't have brought that up. <laughs> Good one, Jonathan. Yeah. But you know, you, there are like, whenever I hear, you know, YouTube stars saying like, oh, I can't monetize my audience. I'm like, you're not thinking hard enough. Mm-hmm. You know, you could be doing birthday parties for eight year olds at, at 5,000 bucks a pop guaranteed. So anyway, well, there's a way to monetize all of this. I mean, I think there always is. And, and, you know, we've talked in some other episodes, and I'm sure we'll talk more in the future about the whole product service ladder. You know, mm-hmm. what do you offer? At what price points? Um, you know, how many clients or how many projects do you need in, in a year or a month uh, to be able to make your business model work? Mm-hmm. But they all you have to have some true fans. Right. And, and you've got to keep them warm, like especially if you're a one to one delivery person, like a developer or a, like a corporate consultant. You've got to find a way to keep those fans warm until they're ready to hire you, especially if you can only do two, three, four a year. Yes, absolutely. Because the time the timing needs to be right for them to need you or, you know, the budget to be there or whatever, you know, if it's a large organization, there's so many factors that go into the decision of a, of a new, a big project or a big initiative. So they need to be, it's kind of, it reminds me of being like a realtor, you know, like they have to, they, their name needs to be in front of you all the time because you're not always selling your house. You're only very rarely selling your house. So, you know, so you get those postcards every week, you know, Hey, you know, <laughs> Kevin Fox sold this house down the street from you, you know, and what he's doing right. is like, he wants you to remember his name when it comes time for you to sell your house or someone, you know, is like, Hey, I'm selling my house. Do you know a good realtor? And, I'm gonna, and, and what did I just do? I just, I know his name, Kevin Fox. That's the local guy. So I wouldn't say I'm a huge, uh, true fan of Kevin Fox, certainly, but to your point of keeping, uh, keeping your audience warm, uh, that's a, that is tricky. So you need to be, mm-hmm. and, I, and I think it's very different from audience to audience. It, it, it This could be yeah. my imagination. I don't have any proof of this, but it feels like if you're selling consulting services to like the C-suite of Fortune 500 companies, you're probably not going to do a daily mailing list for those people. No. No. Right. I I think for those folks, you, I mean, what worked for me in that realm was speaking at conferences and, and just being, I don't know, I guess really convincing and passionate about the sort of future state that I saw at the time. So like, you know, it was early days of mobile and this was, 
to, to most technologists, this was a clear and gigantic business opportunity for companies who were, you know, early to adopt mobile for their retail business or, or whatever it was, like whatever business you had, uh, there was all sorts of wild opportunities when mobile was still emerging. So 2000, around 2010, it really started to catch on with the early adopters. And so I would speak once or twice a month. I'd fly around all over the place and go to conferences and talk about uh, how, how you should think about mobile, how marketers should be thinking about mobile, how product development teams should be thinking about mobile, how their web teams should be thinking about mobile. And and that was that was enough. You know, between writing a book every 18 months or so and, you know, for, for three books in a row and then uh, speaking every month or so at a prominent conference that was enough for people to sort of for my name to be fresh on people's lips like you know kevin fox mm-hmm. when someone wants to sell a house in my neighborhood so for that audience that was that was that was it but if you're doing something more like a like i have a student who's like a b2c sort of person who sells fitness plans and he's got a, a range of sort of you mentioned a product ladder he's got a ladder of offerings that are sort of um template based plan that you kind of download, you buy, you download, and you kind of fill it out. And it's sort of like a choose your own adventure sort of fitness plan. And mm-hmm. he's got these sort of middle tier ones where it's a Skype consultation. You talk and then he puts one together for you and you follow it and there are check-ins. And then he has more of a personal trainer level that's uh, much more uh, much more interactive, but still remote. It's not, uh, not something he does in person. And for that audience, he could definitely email every single day, uh, certainly weekly. You could talk about hip flexibility or uh, tips and tricks for loosening up your lower back if you sit at the computer all day, um, mm-hmm. so on and so forth. He can write all sorts of fun, sort of actionable or like tip type emails that are going to keep people engaged and and keep their interest, something that they might look forward to. So it really does depend on the audience, I think, what style and what volume, what media channel, what type of media you use to reach them. Well, plus, I think that you stay on brand. So you have a brand for your ideal audience, and you stay on that. So if you're this sort of buttoned up corporate person, um, you know, I I just can't picture a a daily email. Um, in, In fact, it's just the opposite. It would be what you did being on the stage at conferences, or not even being on the stage, depending on the person, it could be that you're working the room. The other thing is that a lot of people, when they're getting started, they want to be center stage, keynote speaker. They're like, I've earned this. But sometimes, again, depends on your business model and the conference, you're better off doing a breakout group where you can um, touch them more directly. They can see you in action on the work that you would do. And it's not about inspiring them from the big stage, but about working with them in a small group and and. I wanted to use the word energy, but that's really what it's about. It's feeling your energy and deciding that you're someone they'd want to work with. Oh, I never thought of that, but that would have worked great for me because Mm -hmm. it gives them a taste of the consultative experience and it would give them a lot a a much more interactive, you know, it's like, yeah, it's great. You know, you see, see me up on the stage or you see someone up on stage and they're smart and they're, they're connecting with you, but it's not two way. So having a breakout session where they could, they could sort of share their specifics and you could react to them in real time. If you're actually good at what you do, that would be super compelling 
for the right clients. So you're going to, I mean, you're basically giving, uh, you basically give them a test drive of the car, you know, it's like, Hey, take it for a spin, you know, and I'm not talking about, you know, giving away your expertise for free or just, this is like a, a short interaction where you're just working off the top of your head. You don't have time to do deep research into their industry or anything like that, but they'll get a sense of how you approach problems and how your sort of the, the depth of your thinking in this space will almost surely give you a perspective that they do not have. And you'll be able to pop their eyebrows up. Basically, um, they say, Oh, we've got this thing we've been struggling with, or we can't think of any way to do this, or we're thinking of doing it like this. What do you think? And almost certainly, since it's your expertise and not theirs, almost certainly you're going to be able to have a little bit of a, you know, maybe a diagnostic session with them, ask them a few questions, and then come back with some either really compelling ideas or some, some important questions, things that they should look into before proceeding, uh, maybe something to take back to their team to look into. All of that, because all of a sudden you've created this intimacy level. And that's what marketing is all about right now, is for people, to your clients, your ideal audience, your true fans, to feel like they've got access to you, that they can touch you. So mm-hmm. any and I'll use the word stage loosely, any stage you can be on, whether it's a podcast stage, a video stage, a real life conference stage, any stage you can be on where you build intimacy with people is going to build true fans. Absolutely. Yep. Good stuff. So hopefully the dear listener is familiar enough with their particular audience to perhaps recognize one of these approaches that we've mentioned that would probably be the best fit for their audience and also for their particular skills. Maybe you're, maybe you're better on audio than video, maybe vice versa. Maybe you, you like to get your ideas out uh, via text and you can find some way for that, your sort of strong suit to, to find an overlap with the way that your uh, audience wants to kind of receive that information from you. Well, and I think, you know, two other things. One is you have to experiment, right? Because, you know, most of us don't get this right first time out of the box. I know I haven't. Um, And I think the other thing is you can ask. Um, You can ask, you know, when you think about who your best clients are, ask them what they would find, you know, most helpful, most beneficial, and then, you know, and go in that direction. Absolutely. Yeah, I, I, I give that exact advice all the time. It's like when people are, People are in a target market and they're like, oh, should I do this or should I do this? You know, like, I'm like, don't ask me, ask them. You've got access to them. They're sitting right there. Next <laughs> time you meet with that client, ask them, you know, hey, you guys think, you know, did you guys go to any conferences last year? Or when you guys are, are thinking about work, where do you place your attention? Like when you want to get better at uh, what, you know, it depends on what you're doing. But if, if you wanted to like create a better mobile experience, if you were looking for someone to do something like this, where would you look? Where do you, how do you keep yourself sharp in a business context? You know, is it, is it podcasts, is it video, you know, down the list? And they'll know. They're like, oh yeah, I read HBR every month, you know, cover to cover. I read Harvard Business Review every month. Or I listen to whatever, Science Friday on, on uh, NPR podcasts. Whatever it is, they'll know. They listen to it all the time or they read it all the right. time or they watch it all the time. So, you know, I do want to add one more thing, which is going to sound sort of odd because I know we talk so much about leveraging, but the other piece is to have a one-on-one. 
And it doesn't, doesn't have to be in person. It can be a phone call. In fact, I would argue a phone call is probably better. But there's something about having a phone call with someone who might be a client slash true fan that kicks off the relationship in a way that starts that um, it's, it's like a spark to the relationship that either says, you know, sends them scurrying for the door if you're not a match or kind of brings them in and then they start to read your stuff, watch your stuff, listen to your stuff with more intention because they know who you are, they know what you're about, and they're intrigued even if they're not ready. Cool. All right. That, does that seem like a good place to leave it? I think so. <laughs> All right. Well, that's it for this week. I'm Jonathan Stark. And I'm Rochelle Moulton. And we hope you join us again next time on The Business of Authority. Bye. Bye.